Welcome to the Riverwood Chapel podcast. We're so excited you're here. Please check out our other content and video uploads at riverwoodchapel.org. Thank you. Good morning, Riverwood. Let me try that again. Good morning, Riverwood. It is great to see you, and today is many things. Uh, it is Father's Day. I came down the stairs um, today to to a mug that says, uh, Dad, someone uh, who will say yes when mom says no. So um, I think that's especially true in my context. When you're old enough to be a grandpa and you still have a nine-year-old in the house, uh, you soften a little bit, I guess. I don't know. But happy Father's Day to the dads out there. It's also Juneteenth, and we'll, we'll touch on that more uh, here a little bit later. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's also the first... A week of summer, so so backed by unpopular demand, incredibly unpopular demand. I thought I would throw it together a top ten list for today. Top ten ways Northeast Ohioans are likely to spend this summer. Uh, number ten, preparing ourselves for another fall of heartache following our Cleveland Insert boo here. Um, Number nine, waiting for the direction of the wind to change so that the smoke from our neighbor's bonfire will quit blowing into our house. That may sound incredibly personal, no comment. Uh, number eight, utilizing the swimming pool for the two days that'll be good to swim. Wednesday was one of those days this last week. Uh, number seven, traveling to the official capital of the state of Ohio, the Outer Banks. Number six, utilizing orange barrels as a slalom course. Um, number five, getting a can from the only place you can in Ohio, a can. Um, that funny. Uh, number four, taking out a loan to buy gas to get to the falls, however falls that is. Um, number three, adding another inch to our incredible beard collection. Number two, recovering from Camp Riverwood. Um, and number one, hanging out in everyone's favorite downtown, the city center of Stowe. Okay, a little bit of context here. I literally entered the words in my Google search, fun things to do in Stowe, Ohio, and a picture of Kent came up. So, uh, <laughs> anyway. um, sorry. Um, well, this is the second straight uh, Father's Day that I have had the privilege of standing before you and reading poetry, because we know that every dad's request when he got up this morning uh, was to go to a poetry reading. Uh, and yet, whether we say we like it or not, I think the case can be made that we need poetry, and we especially need Psalm 119 poetry. Poetry is different than prose and definitely different than most of what we read. A great deal of what we read is with the express purpose of being informed. We want to stay up with what's going on. You see, I think great poets inform, but, but that's not why they write as they do. Poets ultimately want to leave the reader changed by what he or she reads or hears. And that happens as poetry is able to capture our imaginations. So poetry doesn't merely communicate, it is creating speech. It creates new pathways in our, in our brains, and that's hard work. I love how Eugene Peterson merges these ideas together when he writes, the Christian gospel is rooted in language, 
God spoke creation into being. Our, uh, our Savior was the Word made flesh. The poet is the person who uses words not primarily to convey information, but to make relationship, shape beauty, form truth. So we have to understand that the writer of Psalm 119 wasn't really wanting to communicate uh, something. He wasn't wanting to just show his, his skill, but he, want, but he was trying to write in a revolutionary format that with the goal of doing no less or no more than to make relationship, shape beauty, and form truth. And he wants us to hear the word this morning, not merely words. Psalm 119 is a poem, and it is a prayer, and it was written in horrendous times with one key thing, the all-sufficiency of the Word of God. The writer is hurting, and yet it's the Word of God that he clings to. And, and the thing that pours through is not just how bad things are, but how incredible the Word of God is. And it's a gigantic shift in perspective. I think the significance of today's passage is that it's probably the most autobiographical of any section of this psalm. So as the poet writes his story behind the words, it's, I think it's important for us to think about the prophet Jeremiah speaking to, to a generation that had forgotten the word of the Lord. And in the midst of a generation that had ridiculed and ignored him, one man, one captive heard the prophet say the words in car or remember and responded with this diary of his meditation. Psalm 119 is that diary. And this is a story that is painful. He's exiled. He's persecuted. He's oppressed. He is staggering through the desert away from home. Gimel and Dalet, these, these two Hebrew letters together, is the autobiography of an exile journey into the unknown, countering the messages that, that, that we still hear, that our hearts try to tell us. We are lost, and we don't have enough. One of the first times I remember feeling fear as a child was on a rainy night when my family was coming back from a trip, and I heard my dad say these words. We are lost, and I'm not sure we have enough gas. Now, memory is still very vivid because I think it encapsulates uh, a lot of the major fears that we, that we all wrestle with. Fear that we're lost, fear that we're not going to have enough. See, when, when we're lost, we feel disoriented and a desperate need to orient or reorient. The poet's in exile. He's, he's disoriented from at home as he knows it. He's displaced and he is journeying farther and farther and farther into the unknown, probably with this thought in his mind, crystal clear, I'm, I'm never going home again. I'm never going home again. And so he's forced to make a choice in that moment to, to stay disoriented or to reorient, even perhaps to redefine home. How did I get from there to here? And how do I get from here there. These last couple of years, I think for many of us, have been the most disorienting years of our lives. In many ways, it feels like we're on this journey into the unknown where everything is changing, and it, and it seems like it just keeps changing more rapidly. And we ask questions. Where, where do we go when we're lost? 
And where do we go when we fear we won't have enough? Because I think humanity is, is capable of awful things when it feels lost and it feels that things are scarce and I've got to get mine. But this, this ballad uh, is a ballad of fear that, that's turned in the right direction. As Cole's been talking about, Genesis 3 is, is at the root of all of this. And, and the three most defining words of Adam in Genesis 3, I think, are words that we find in, in, in verse 10, where he simply says, I was afraid. I was afraid. They're words that Jesus uses when he asks questions all the time. Um, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? I think these are some of the most core words of our sinfulness and our brokenness. And the poet lets us know where to go with these feelings. We see these themes in our culture all the time. Many of our great novels and, and, and movies. Nomadland won Best Picture last year with these themes of lostness and scarcity. The Martian was up for Best Picture a few years ago with those themes of lostness and isolation and scarcity. Even the great, great movie Dumb and Dumber. Because what happens when you thought you were in Colorado and you really in Nebraska and you realize that John Denver has no idea what he's talking about? If you're alive, you felt it, you lived it, you feared it. What if I get lost? What if I don't have enough? In this section, the writer wants us to know his story. And I think it's a story we should know. Because his exile informs our situation. His journey helps us to journey well through similar terrain. And he speaks to all of us who have known the challenge uh, of, of hard terrain in our lives. See, if you're going on any trip, if you're going on any journey, you need two things. You need guidance as to where you're headed, and you need supply for the journey. That's Gimel, and that's Dalit. Or if you'll allow me today, we're going to switch them up, and that's Dalit, and that's Gimel. As Hebrew teachers would teach the alphabet, the students, each letter had a metaphor that, that they would teach with it. The metaphor for Dalit is, is door. And the door is, is the symbol of guidance, specifically guidance that comes through the word of God. And so he starts this passage in verse 25 with these words. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Literally, uh, the picture that we get here is of pain clinging to every part of him. The original Hebrew speaks of him being so low that he has actually become one with his humiliation. It clings to him. So he says, give me life, God, because you're the only one who can. That word also means here to revive me. So, so to re revive means to make strong and restore life, not just enough life to survive, but abundance of life. So picture this in, in, in the middle of a desert of death. He prays for a revival of life. Verse 26, when I told of my ways, you answered me, teach me your, teach me your statutes. As God is opening the door in response to his uh, promises and in, in, re, uh, in response to the psalmist's request for revival, we see the details of this revival beginning to take shape. And God is answering him as the, as the writer screams out 
uh, two of God's favorite words. The words are, teach me. Teach me. What if all of us were to wake up every morning with those words? Father, teach me. Teach me. See, I think teachability always precedes revival. And revival never happens without a teachable people. Verse 27. Make me understand the ways of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Notice the word way here because he's going to use it a couple of times in this passage. So as, as one who is on a journey driven by the Lord further and further into the unknown, he's saying we can't take two different ways and get to the right destination. If he's going to arrive at the right place in the right way, especially in the context of desert travel, he can't continue on the false way. For him, there are multiple paths to revival. He has to choose a way. So verse 30, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. Verse 29 is a request to remove the false way so that he can get to verse 30 and the faith way, the faithful way. I think sometimes in my life I've tried to get on the faithful way while carrying the false way with me. It says we can't do that. That faithful way means to lean on something for support. Faith requires that we have an object and there is only one in which we can place that faith that will truly give us life. So what do we lean on for support? Let me ask it this way. What, what do we lean on for support in our lives that isn't God? Where have we leaned on false ways and, and tried to get to the right destination? Where are we being called toward the faithful way in our lives? And what are the false ways we have to leave behind? And in the final two verses of this stroke, verse 31, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. An enlarged heart is a, is a soul that's been strengthened through study and, and constant taking in of the word of God and, and clinging to it and, and literally being consumed by it. And this section is all about choosing the right door in a faithful way and realizing that God's word provides the way for all of us who are lost. That's Dalit. But then there's Gimel. And Gimel, the, the, the metaphor for Gimel was a camel. And, and, and Gimel represents this idea of divine supply. So when you travel through the desert on foot, as these exiles would have understood very well, life depended on you crossing enough caravans in that travel to keep you supplied with food and water. So that's the picture we get entering in uh, to, this, to this section of the psalm. So verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. When the psalmist says deal bountifully, he has his mind on God as the one who supplies all of his needs. And he sees specifically God's word as that which sustains him. God, I can't get to the next 
station if you don't supply what I need from your word in order to get there. And as he travels, he asks God to open his eyes that he may behold the wonders of the law. The word open here is a rare word used in the Old Testament. It, it, it's the, one of the only other times it's used is in Numbers 22 in reference to, to Balaam's eyes being opened to the avenging angel standing before him. And, 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 so, and so we see in, in that story that Balaam's eyes suddenly become open uh, to the destruction that he was being protected from on his journey. What if the most valuable thing in our lives remains veiled to us and the veil is, is not lifted and it's hidden in plain sight? What if the path that we are on is leading to destruction like Balaam's and we can't even see it because it's veiled to us? See, the writer of this psalm absolutely knew where to focus his eyes. What if we spend an entire, our entire lives with this in our homes? Maybe even on an app on our phones. We have constant access to the Word of God, the, the source of life, and yet, and yet it stays veiled to us. We either don't open it, or when we read it, it stays veiled because we, we veil it by our interests, our agendas, our worldviews, our desires. In Matthew 13, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah, and he says this about his own people. It says, this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their, or with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. See, these are people that should see. They, they knew, they had read the Word of God. Many of them had memorized the Word of God, but they can't see it. They can't even see him who is the word embodied in their midst, Jesus Christ. Their eyes are glazed over. Their hearts are dull. Are dull. He says, open our eyes to see. Verse 19, I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Verse 19 is a verse for journey, and, and journey is costly. And that's not just when gas is six bucks a gallon. See, he's journeying into the unknown, and, and there was very little to rely upon. No Google Maps, no GPS, no ways, no even old-school Rand McAnally, no travel exits. I don't know about you, but I complain when the Starbucks in the Pennsylvania Travel Plaza is closed. Imagine what he's experiencing. He's alienated. He's a sojourner. He's a stranger on earth. And as he wanders through the desert and deeper into exile in a strange land with a strange people, a dual thought begins to consume him. On one side, it disorients him. I don't belong here. I don't belong here. But then suddenly he begins to reorient with this thought. But I know who I belong to. I know uh, with whom I belong See, if you wear a University of Michigan shirt in this state, I've noticed that people will kind of look at you weirdly. I hope you've not felt this, but, I, but I, I, I've heard some people convey this sort of, you know that shirt doesn't belong here, don't you? And maybe you begin to personalize it even with this sense of, well, maybe, maybe I don't belong here. See, in exile, the writer is feeling that way. I don't 
belong here. But here's the part that is both a challenge to us and a beautiful thought. When we say we belong to God, it supersedes any other belonging in our lives. As he travels, as he sojourns farther and farther away from what he's called home, he finds more and more his home in the word of God. I love home. I love, uh, specifically, I love sitting in my recliner at home. Some days that, that gets me through, that thought uh, of sitting in the recliner. But that's not home in the biggest sense of the word. See, if we're at home in Christ, this world is going to treat us as an alien. And if the idea of home is a place that will fully satisfy you, we will, we will never find that on this earth. One of Kent's most famous residences is moving. And you could make the case that, that, that it's the perfect home. $4 million, 94 acres. I know $4 million won't buy you what it used to, but, but uh, we'll, we'll say it's enough. But I'm going to make the case that it's not the perfect home or they wouldn't be moving out of that. And even if I had $4 million and I bought that house and I moved there, it definitely wouldn't be the perfect home because I was there and I'm not perfect. And all the Haynes family said, Amen. <laughs> See, even a $4 million home won't satisfy that need for home, your longing for home. Because our home by design is, is in the Word who is Jesus Christ. In John 15, Jesus says this, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So even if you're living in a $4 million home, even if you're living in the home you were born in, the same is true. This is not our home. We are not of this world. Jesus says it himself. Home for us is ahead. Verse 20. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. In verse 20, he used this, uses this word that, that really convicts me. It's this word consumed. The word literally means to be crushed. In all likelihood, this man has faced starvation. He has faced torture. He's watched his family uh, members be murdered. And with all that, that could have, even should have crushed him, he says, I'm crushed with longing for one thing, God's word. Do you ever think about what consumes us, what crushes us? Is it three-quarter percent interest rate hikes? See, those words consumed or crushed with longing shock me. I love the word of God. I even majored in biblical literature for undergrad. Not very many people do that. But can I really say that I am consumed with longing for God's word? I'm not apathetic towards it. And yet I find myself in need of repentance and correction here. I want to be more consumed with the word of God than I am. I mean, Jesus is the word. And don't we long to be concerned, consumed with the very thing that will bring us life? So what are the things that consume us? The Browns quarterback situation, sports, our kids, our job, school, the state of the economy. 
As the sojourner travels through life, as he lives and moves and has his being, he is inviting us into his journey of wherever our travels take us to be more and more consumed by the word of God. Verse 21, you rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Here the writer is feeling his own crushing brokenness of his alienation from God. He's literally saying that reproach uh, and shame have wrapped him like a piece of clothing. He calls those who wander from the word the accursed. So this is the opposite of how this psalm begins with the word blessed. He, uh, and so for the psalmist, blessing comes not only from the word of God, but from love of the word of God. Uh, and according to the writer, cursed in this life comes away from walking, comes from walking away from that word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 22 is one of repentance of confession. He was admitting, as we, I think, need to at many times in our lives, he admits that I was one of those who walked away from your word and received your rebuke. And the final two verses of this passage, beginning with verse 23, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 23 says that people in authority are plotting his ruin. And in the midst of that, he turns to the only one that he can turn to, to God himself. And as he closes this stroke, there's that word that he uses over and over and over again throughout this song. The word is, is meditate. He says, your word is my delight, my counselor. So the writer, the alien here, says that it's more vital for him to meditate on and obey God's word than to escape the world's contempt. He would rather be hated than abandon the word of God. And so in Dalit and Gimel, we literally see the revival of a man who is lost and who's running out of resources. See, revival, both individual and corporate, requires that we know the faithful way are teachable in that way and know where our supply comes from. And that, that kind of revival comes, I think, with several different confessions. The first confession is this one. These three words, I am lost. I am lost. How did I get from there to here? And how do I get from here to there? I don't know about you, but I haven't confessed that once in my life. And I don't think I'm being hyperbolic here and saying that I have confessed those words at least a thousand times in my life. And here's the thing about lostness. Every time, every time the culprit was me. I mean, I have an enemy that specializes in deception, but every time I was culpable, I chose the false way and I got lost. But here's the beauty of, of this passage. The faithful way is present to any of us who are willing to say, Father, I'm lost. I'm lost. Second confession is this. Um, I can't supply my real need. I can't do it. God, you are my supply. And if we miss that, we will live with a scarcity complex all of our lives. 
And our very lives will be given up to making up a deficit that we can't make up. And things like FOMO, fear of missing out, will, will take over and drive us. Everything will be viewed through the lens of our lack and, and not the immeasurability of God's supply. We see this in kids, don't we? Kids that are age two and kids that are age 65. What we have is enough until we see what somebody else has. And we stop seeing through the lens of, of what God has provided for us. And we start seeing through the lens of everything that we don't have. And envy and covetousness and sin take over. Forgive us, Father, for the times when we thought that our good fortune came from our own ingenuity. From our own resourcefulness. From our own anything. See, the reason that Jesus is trying to teach us to pray, give us today our daily bread, is that everything that we have is from his hand. That we have to acknowledge that everything we have is from him, his supply, his provision, and the immeasurable God is enough. The third confession goes along with it. And it's this, only God can supply my real need. See, I think the writer may have had a disadvantaged advantage, one that we wouldn't wish upon anyone, but for him and through him becomes a source of salvation. He had been stripped of everything, and in the desert of his discontent, at a moment when he's thinking everything is lost, one thought changed his perspective and changed his life. I have the word of God as a constant companion, and in the word is life, and literally everything I need. Jesus said, man will not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You may be listening to this and, and to the poet and saying that's cute that he thinks that. But he doesn't know my world. He doesn't know how th hard things are. I've tried it God's way and things are still a mess. I do not believe it's overly simplistic to say it like this. If Christ is in us and we are living in Christ, we have everything. We have everything. So let me ask you to do something today. If you believe that, would you tell your face? Uh, uh, maybe go deeper than that. Why don't you tell your heart and have your heart tell your face? I, I am in Christ and I have everything. But what about... What about those hard things I'm going through in my marriage, at work, and my house that's falling apart? I am in Christ, and I have literally everything I need. The final confession is this. I need revival. I need revival. We do not live in a desert, but we have lived in the desert of reliance on the wrong things, diversions and distractions that have kept us from God's supply lost and fearing what's next. See, this word is life, and it brings revival to the most lost. These are the words describing this man's reliance upon God's word. Listen to them. He longed for it. He meditated on it. He delighted in it. He clung to it. He was consumed by it. He was revived by it in the middle of a lonely desert. Let me make this very clear. He had nothing. Compared to any person in this room, he had nothing. And what he found on his journey was that he actually had everything. 
It's been said of Moses that he spent the first 40 years of life in the desert learning to be nothing so that he could spend the next 40 years of his life proving that God is everything. When are, when are our eyes going to be open to the fact that God is everything? And that is revival. Let me ask it this way. When are we going to learn to live as if God's everything? Sometimes it takes a desert to lead us to that place. So on the day that we commemorate Juneteenth and the literal release of captives and the celebration of freedom, we listen to the words of a man who himself was a captive. And yet as he started this journey with one idea of captive, as of exile, another idea of captive began to take over him. Because the more he walked away from home, in another sense, the more he walked into home, as he became more and more captured and consumed and even crushed by the word of God. And revival in this man's life came as he was captured by the word of God. And he came to this conclusion. I long for it. I meditate on it. I cling to it. I am consumed by it. I am captured by the word of God. Would you pray with me right now? I want to just pray us through those four confessions uh, right now um, as we close this morning. Let's just pray together. Maybe you're here and you resonate with those words today. In one way or another, you're feeling this. I am lost. Should you just confess that to your Heavenly Father today? Maybe be specific with Him about ways you're feeling lost. Second part of the confession is this. Father, I can't supply my real need. Did you just confess? Maybe it's even a time to confess false ways we've tried to fill that need with something that's not God. And then in this third confession, would you just lean into him and say, Father, only you can supply my real need. Fourth confession is for all of us. I need revival. Father, we pray right now that in the midst of a season that has been hard for your people, Lord, we need revival. We need a revival of being consumed with your word and realize, Lord, that things feel strange and this, this journey feels strange right now. Your word is our constant companion. Would you enrapture us with your word, your presence as a constant guide, as a constant supply of our real needs, Father? I don't know the deserts that, that people carried into this room with them today, but Lord, would you, would you meet us in the middle of the, that desert and guide us home? We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you.